0: glad you're with us today. We do want to extend a special welcome to graduating seniors and their families that are with us and be celebrating them a little bit later and having a time of fellowship together. I do want to invite all of you to turn to Malachi. If you have an easier time finding Matthew, you're in a good neighborhood, just turn to the left. You'll be there before you know it. I worship your holy name. You know, we say that over and over again. My suspicion is, most of the time when we hear the word worship, we do think of an event, namely an event that's at 1030 on Sundays, and even more specifically, when we think about worship, we probably even think more distinctly about the musical aspect of that service. It's pretty natural. I mean, that's the terminology that we've often given it, but, you know, when we read the scriptures like you heard read and Malachi 1.11, about the Lord's name going out throughout all the nations. That what you see here is a connection between worship and missions. You see that really there is no distinction whatsoever between declaring the Lord and His greatness in His sanctuary and then the Lord's greatness being extolled out in the world among the nations so that He draws to Himself everyone from every tribe, tongue, and nation that He will bring to Himself. But we also know that Scripture says judgment begins with the house of God. See, when the local church doesn't worship rightly, then the word of God does not go out in the way that it should, at least through that particular local church. Now, we know that the gates of hell will not stand against the big C church. We know that God will have a witness. He will, as Revelation makes clear, he will have a lampstand. Our ambition should be to be a faithful local lampstand here right on the hill at Wilson Park community area and particularly right here at the doorstep of the university and be a faithful church that declares the worship of the Lord. But what we see in Malachi is how worship is much more circumspect than we would like to think. How worship affects everything. See, the context again of Malachi is, it is, you know, not all of the Old Testament is certainly arranged chronologically, but Malachi does for the most part, should be at the end as a transition to the New Testament. Contemporary of Ezra and Nehemiah, there's more notes in your notes that you can get online to get more of the background, so I encourage you to go there, but I do want to remind you of a couple of things. They had just finished building the temple. Ezra had led back one wave back out of Babylonian exile. Nehemiah had led another wave They had established the temple and its practices first, and then Nehemiah came in and established the walls, and essentially, the people became an identifiable people again, a distinct people separated for God's purposes. But about 20 years or so had passed, and still waiting for the Lord to come and inhabit the very temple they just completed, they were growing frustrated. And in that waiting period really starts to expose what it is you really worship, because they begin to allow the... Infiltration of the greater culture, which for their time was Persia. And that great culture was coming in and some of the Greek influences and eventually Roman influences would come. And eventually then, several hundred years later, Christ would come on the scene into that backdrop of that culture. The priests were becoming corrupt. There was difficulty in the land where there were famine and drought um, circumstances going on. The people were just going through the motions. Their orthodoxy was dead. Their morals began to be compromised. Their ministry and how they extended relationships to those who had even less than they did was diminishing, and their focus was completely on themselves. I mean, this is the backdrop of some contentions that God makes to the people through his prophet Malachi. Now, I said earlier that today is Pentecost. Sunday It's a day that we do remember at least the fact that Christ remained 40 days and then he ascended. And as we think about Acts 1, 6 through eight and how they're requiring, now is the time that you will come and establish your kingdom. The whole time that Christ was with the disciples and, and then died and suffered his death and was buried raised from the dead three days later and then was with him in teaching them and explaining how he was throughout the Old Testament and he is the fulfillment. And the point of all of the text. Then he ascends. He says it's not yet for you to know the times. But in the meantime you're to be my witnesses. Look everything finds its culmination. Everything we speak of today finds its culmination in Christ. And I think that the cultural dynamic. The social dynamic among the believers at the time of Pentecost. Is very similar to what we see at the time of Malachi. They've been waiting after establishing the temple, for the Lord to sit down and reign and rule and conquer enemies around them and reestablish the grandeur of the kingdom. Of course, then, even when Christ is about to ascend, you can imagine, wow, we thought it might be now, but he still says not yet. And the kingdom continually is redefined, not according to biblical standards, but as Christ has unfolded how he is the king of that kingdom, and how then the people themselves are the temple and not the actual temple, he shows again how the redefinition is just really clarifying the biblical definition of his kingdom. And we're still in that waiting period. I mean, we've, we've seen the temple established, we've seen it desecrated. We've seen Christ come and he described himself as a temple who would then be destroyed, and three days later he would, raise, he would rise from the dead... But then we also see in, in Ephesians two nineteen through 22 how he establishes his people to be a temple, that he will inhabit them, inhabit their praises. And in the meantime, we are to be his witnesses, to take the witness of his glory to the nations until kingdom come. We're still in that waiting period until he comes and sits and resides in the new Jerusalem and establishes the new heavens and the new earth. And on that day, he will exact justice In every way. And he will show that his mercy to his own has never been essentially delayed. Not in eternal standards. So what are we left with? We're left with waiting. But we're also left with what do we do in the meantime? That is much of the contention he's making to the people at the time. And it's the contention that we have that we have to share with in this story what are we doing in the meantime because really what's at stake here is understanding of how do you worship god until kingdom come what we see in this book is how god is in the details god cares about not just how you do worship but even your heart and also how worship is extended to all of your life so the overarching question we've addressed here is does it matter how we worship well yes And so we don't just assume assumptions or make assumptions about definitions. Worship is, as many of you know, the ascription of worth. But when you see how that comes mashing up against the themes of Malachi, you realize that what God is contending with the people on is this. How are you ascribing worth to my name in every area of your life? You will see in Malachi how he deals with money, food, time, even marriage, your home life. How are you ascribing to me worth in every area of your life? It all has to do with worship. Now, one pattern that we have to, again, remind ourselves of with Malachi is that it does follow this chiastic pattern. And we've dealt with this a little bit in the Minor Prophets. How basically what you'll have is you'll have where the the ends work back toward the middle and there's parallels. So the first point and the last point often parallel one another. So you'll have kind of an an A, B, and then if there's three points, main points, you'll have a C, C, back to the B, back to the A, okay? It's not really poetry, but it is a literary tool to reinforce the larger point. So what we saw in our first sermon about three weeks ago in Malachi was that God's first dispute the first point was that he loves his people with a sovereign love. And he was disputing with them that point because they were raising the question God, how do you love us? Because you are allowing us to go through great difficulty. There is drought, there is famine, we are suffering, you've not yet come to your temple, and it appears to us that the enemies that you've delivered us from are actually prospering. So they are actually almost disputing with God on his sovereign love. Of course, what does he remind them of? Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Even the Edomites who Esau represents and who became his descendants, he says, I've refused. Every time they've tried to raise up some kind of army against my people, I thwarted that. He says, let them do it again. I'll crush it again. He's reminding them that they need to look at his faithfulness in their history to know that while they may not be presently seeing full and final victory, they know that God has continued to preserve his people. So I love you, and my covenant sovereign love is going to preserve you. So that was the first point. Well, then what we see at the end of this book, really, not in the conclusion, which is verses 4 through 5 or so, at the very end of chapter 4, but really through verse 3 of chapter 4, how he reminds them, again, of that sovereign love. So points A and points A at at the end are all about God's love. So in a sense... We could see this as being... Worship is all about your perspective of God and His love for you. Secondly, it's your perspective about God and His love for you in light of how you deal with others... Or, I'm sorry, how you deal with yourself in your worship of Him. And then the third thing would be, how do you deal with others? I'm still going to take you through all six points. But six represent the three main points. How do you treat God... And view his love for you. How do you treat yourself and yourself in light of who God is? Because if you mess up your view of God, you will usually exalt yourself and have an obscure, even perverted view of self. And then the third thing, how do you deal with others particularly? And he gets right to the the root, the home, your marriage. It reminds me of Paul. What, What does Paul do in Colossians 3 and Ephesians 5? I mean, he's given examples of here's how to live out in the household of God, but almost as if to say, and the most exemplary place to see this really at work on how you're dealing with the church is to look at your household. All right? So there will be preaching, there will be encouragement, and there will be a fairly massive amount of meddling in all of our lives before we're done in the next several minutes. So we already preached on that first understanding of what is worship, and really in verses 1 through 5 of Malachi, worship begins with the right view of God's love, and that represents that first disputation, that first dispute that's represented here from Malachi, how the people were questioning whether or not God really loved them, and we talked about how God, yes indeed He does, and He's proved it, and He's reminding them of His sovereign, gracious love that also preserves them, but they were losing perspective because of their present circumstances. What I'd like to do is dive right into the second dispute and go on from there. So first of all, let's just remind ourselves, worship begins with a right view of God's love in verses 1-5 through of chapter 1. The second thing is, worship demands pure offerings, starting in verse 6, and this goes through chapter 2, verse 9. Let's read just a little bit, just some excerpts. We don't have time really to read the whole book. He says, As a son honors his father... And a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name. But you say, have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those who are lame or sick... Go to verse 9. And now entreat the favor of God that He may be gracious to us with such a gift from your hand. Will He show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? He says at at the end of verse 10, I have no pleasure in you and I will not accept your offering. And then there's where the verse comes in that we quoted earlier. From the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations and in every place incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. So the second dispute, really what he does is turn the tables on their dispute to him, which is, God, do you really love us? He says, yes, I do. I have proved it. I've said it with my mouth and I've preserved you all this time. He then really turns it by saying, do you love me because you're profaning me and how you're worshiping me, even just in the offerings. So the dispute is, are God's people loving towards him? See, the real question is not God's love for the people, but the people's love for God. They're drawing into question His character. Each one of the disputes raises something about the character of God, and God calls them on it. So keep that in mind. We're going to use a similar pattern for each of the disputes. What's the dispute? What's the character of God that's in question? What's the evidence that they actually are doing what God has said? And then what are some heart and practical matters that we can derive from that? What they're questioning really here is, is God really worthy of honor? Is God worth giving him what God demands of his people for him? Do you really believe that God cares about how you worship? Look, this, this far exceeds whether or not it's okay to wear a ball cap in a church building or whether or not, you know, I put a jacket over a t-shirt because I'm preaching on prophets. I'm not doing this for anyone else. There's a way you text So I'll just put on the jacket to add a little bit of weight to it. I might take it off in a minute because I'm hot. It has only something to do with that, but not an appearance. Only in the sense of that we must honor God in the way that God says He will be honored. Now we know that Christ satisfied every aspect of how the law was to work and function in satisfying Him in worship. But that does not mean that any less do we come to him honoring him with full, complete purity. They're basically questioning his name. He says, my name's going to be honored, but you're not honoring my name even in your own fellowship. He says, but my name's going to be honored even among the nations. But you start to see the correlation here. If it's not honored among the people who claim his name, you're not going to be taking that name to the nations as you should be. The evidence here is that the priests are offering lame sacrifices, literally. They are not giving the purity that is demanded of God in their worship. That they offer unblemished sacrifices. Why? What does this ultimately do? It draws question to what God ultimately provides in the person of Christ. Christ is no lame offering. Christ was perfect. Unblemished. And that's what's demanded to satisfy God's offering for our sin forever. Remember what the writer of Hebrews said? Because in the blood of bulls and goats, there is no full and final remission of sin. But in Christ's shedding of his blood, there is. See, the types and shadows have to be consistent with what they're typifying. It's compromising the view of Christ, the Messiah that's to come. He's even challenging them on how they're bringing him. He says that they are bringing these offerings with violence. He says, it's not even just that they're bringing these animals to them that are lame. But they're bringing them to them with violence. He says, I'm not going to accept it. It's a cheat. You make your vows, but you present your vows in a way that's not consistent with my name. I don't accept it. So we have to understand something here. In the questioning of whether or not you love God, you have to also understand that with God's demands of what He says actually loves Him, you have to agree with God that what God says is what goes. So you don't get to come to God and say, well, I'm good enough. Because guess what? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You would be a lame sacrifice for yourself that God would not accept. He will say, Many will come to me on that day and say, Lord, Lord, look at all we've done in your name, offering a lame sacrifice based on their own self righteousness. And he says, No, you basically are coming to me with a broken leg or a blind eye. You are coming to me as a sinner, and only an unblemished sacrifice will be brought into me and be a satisfying offering. So you need a perfect offering. They were cheating. There's consequences here. Because they had defiled God, look at what he does. He says, and now, priests, chapter 2, verse 1, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them, because you do not lay it to heart. So he cares about the motivation as well as their actions. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. So shall you know that I have sent this command to you that my covenant with Levi may stand. And he reminds them of the covenant that he has with Levi, how it was pure and how they followed him. And he set aside the tribe of Levi outside of the 12 tribes to be a distinct tribe so that again, representing that when Christ the full and final priest would come, he would satisfy everything that they did, but fully and finally, yes, he spread he said symbolically, I think that he would spread dung on their faces, but this represents the law that at least at the very basics, they would understand, basically, when they would bring in even undefiled um, offerings that they at least knew this that if in the process of these offerings coming into the places where they would then sacrifice the animals, everything had to be purified. Everything. Well, and just to be plain about it, if the animal pooped, they had to take that poop and it be in a sanctified way taken outside of everything that was sacred and holy and actually burned up and consumed. It could not be left and just thrown aside. Even at the very basics, they understood that basically anything that was to be offered but had poop on it, it had to be purified. Dung sounds a whole lot better, but I still have a bunch of kids, and they just that's just what we say at our house. But he's saying, I'm going to put this in your face. This is just how unclean God sees it. This is to capture their perspective, to understand the impurity of what they're doing. Because they have compromised enough to think that this is acceptable enough. And God is saying, no, even on your worst day, you know this is defiling, and I'm putting this all over you. So God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God will not accept defiled offerings into his presence for sin. And you and I, by our natures, apart from Christ, do not have acceptability before a holy God. The matters here, and I think this is really telling, when he says um, earlier, when he says that incense, if you go back to chapter 1, just, just some, some, some consistencies that I think would be good to brought, be brought out here before we go to our next point. He says, When my name will be great among the nations, in every place incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. This is beautiful. Guess what? Incense is something that's to be offered only in the temple. But what's he saying? He's saying actually that the incense, he says, everywhere that it is offered, my name will be great. This helps us understand that his view of worship is to be further extended beyond just where they were confining it in the temple. It is to be circumspect and reach out into the world and be declared. God's greatness is to be declared, but when his greatness is declared, purity is demanded. Holiness is demanded. Even perfection. I'm not talking about perfection of the ones who follow him, but certainly those who have Christ, that they are to proclaim the perfections of Christ To the greatness of God. This is where missions and worship mash together. This also helps us understand that when worship, the greatness and the glory of God, does not extend for the church out into the world, out into the community, that instead of it being a fragrant offering of incense that smells good to the Lord, we actually end up stinking to the world when His greatness is not great enough to take hold of our lives outside of this building, outside of small groups, outside of Bible fellowships, whatever we're showing the world, it stinks. We're going to be a fragrant offering, a holy and pleasing sacrifice to the Lord, where His greatness is great enough to affect everything in our lives, including our marriages, our dealings with others. That's where he goes next. Disputation number three. Point number three. Worship centers on covenant faithfulness. Skip down to verse 10. Judah had really profaned the covenant, but I want you to look at how they had profaned the covenant. His dispute with them is that the people had broken their covenant with God essentially by breaking the covenant of their own marriages. See, what he says here is that for my name to be great, not only do you have to offer pure and holy sacrifices from the hearts of people who understand that I love them, but it has to take effect into your covenant relationships because God's sovereign love is pure and perfect as it shows covenant relationship, which bears back on God's name. If God loves his people, but he doesn't keep them in covenant, that's not very loving, is it? So when the people then profane what represents his covenant by the breaking of marriages and the breaking up of homes, it profanes the name of God. It is anti-worship. Look at what he says in verse 10. Have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our our fathers? Judah has been faithless and abomination. You hear that word? Keep that in mind when we read what he's talking about. An abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign God. May the Lord cut them off. Ezra and Nehemiah, if you read those two books, you see where he dealt they dealt with those same issues. They had intermarried. This is not about mixed. Ethnic marriages. I can say, it may make them feel uncomfortable, but I can say boldly, I would be happy for any of my daughters to marry a man who is sold out for Christ, whether he is African, Asian, whatever, Hispanic, I don't care. I want him to be a child of the Lord. This is not about ethnic mix-up. This is about those who have married married Those who follow other gods, including those who follow no gods. This means that as you seek a spouse, pray for a spouse, you can know, you don't have to pray, God, do you want me to pursue marriage with this person who doesn't know you? You might as well be praying, God, do you really love your church? God, help me understand, is Jesus really the only way? God has already spoken on the matter. It is never His answer. In fact, I will say this, and I say this with all grace, as much as I can, being excited about this text. But please hear me, and maybe I'm going to have to depend on some of you knowing me for the last almost seven years when I say this. But look, here's how sovereign I believe God is. Even if you married someone knowing they weren't a Christian and you were a Christian, I have to say this. Yes, if God saved your spouse, it is not because you were a missionary person who married a lost person. He saved them in spite of even maybe, what I could say is, a measure of disobedience. But you know what? His grace is greater. His grace is greater. Look, I've led couples who have been divorced for unbiblical reasons to look at each other in the face and say, Forgive me for marrying you. Seems weird. But they did. They wrongfully joined together. But you know what? There is great grace. They sought God's forgiveness. They sought the forgiveness of their former spouses where there were relationships. And they began to move forward. But it is never God's design for those who love Him and know Him and follow Him to marry those who do not know Him or even follow other gods. Because it profanes, it brings confusion, it brings really, in a sense, a measure of blasphemy to covenant. And God has decided that marriage is going to represent covenant in the lives of His people. So that was the first evidence of their dispute. They were compromising God's faithfulness by intermarrying with other religions. It's a way of saying God is not faithful enough, I'm going to go seek out other lovers who follow other gods. But... It's not just that. He says, and this second thing you do, verse 13, you cover the Lord's altar with your tears, with weeping and groaning. Why? Because he's, they're saying, please give us your blessing. Please accept our offerings when they are disobeying Him categorically in their weddings, in their marriages. But it's not just with the intermarrying with false religions. He says, Because the Lord has witness between you, verse fourteen, and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Now he's actually even speaking of those who are in covenant marriages, faithful marriages, but where there is faithlessness faithlessness going on, and he says, Did he not make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union? And what has the one God what was the one God seeking? godly offspring that's right okay high school graduates you're going to college you're hoping when you get a degree you're also going to get a wife or a husband maybe that happens look I went to Baylor and there was a, like a one to four ratio like guys to girls may or may not have influenced my reason for going to Baylor but I left there joyfully without a woman okay got reconnected my wife and I I'd known her since she was about eight or nine married her when she was 15 it was, just kidding And so, when we reconnected after I got back from doing missions in Germany, I was grateful for how God had preserved and brought paths back together. You can trust Him in these things. But I can tell you that in the pursuit of these things, that in the pursuit of these things, there has to be a desire. You may make your plans and you may say, well, I don't think we're ready yet, but if there's not a general gut-wrenching, and this certainly goes for you college students, something in your gut that says you know what maybe we're not saying we want kids in that nine and a half month of our marriage but there also needs to be something in your gut that says but, but man if that be the lord's will rejoice god wants godly marriages for godly offspring so for those of us with kids summertime's a great time to reamp up discipling the very either lost or saved right down your hallways Use the summer to recapture family worship. Use the summer to produce godly offspring. Maybe you've already got them. Just because they come out of the womb doesn't mean that they're godly. Just because you were. Train up godly offspring. It's God's desire for you, but what does He say? He says, guard yourself in your spirit. Let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth, but the man, for the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence. They were marrying people who believed in other gods and they were divorcing their wives. Look, there are a couple of concessions in the scriptures and we don't have time to go there. This, sure, there'd be a great case for taking our time through Malachi. Every one of these disputes is worthy of a singular message. But I wanted to go over it at a large scale because I want you to see how worship is circumspect for all of our lives. It touches on everything. But you have to make this point. The Bible does give us, according to sinfulness and hardness of heart, that there is an allowance, a concession for divorce. Specifically, in the case of adultery, and I think you have to be more strict in what this looks like, but desertion, basically the desertion of an unbelieving spouse of the believing spouse. In both cases, the, the concession really is for the innocent party. Meaning, you don't go off and have an adulterous affair so that you can, under God's view, go ahead and it be okay for you to get divorced. That's a practical form of biblical heresy. Now, that gets messy. And we can even have varying views and interpretations on whether or not remarriage is allowed in those circumstances. But here's what he's saying. He's saying specifically, in these unwarranted situations... In the situations where basically there is just anger and violence going on in the relationship, I'm not even getting into things like abuse. Basically, for irreconcilable differences, there is unwarranted divorce going on. But please understand something even when there are concessions, the Bible never says, well, go ahead. That's the ticket. Because we have a whole book in the Bible, Hosea, that says, you know what looks more like gospel than divorce under a concession because of adultery? Is the restoration and forgiveness from an adulterous relationship. Now, guys, don't see this as legalistic or harsh, because God's grace can show up on the front end and back end of these things. But what I am saying is that those who are in covenant relationship... With the Lord. And therefore in covenant relationship in their marriages. They seek ways. For there to be reconciliation. They don't look for a way out. That's not what God does. And that's not what we should do in our marriages. So we should make every effort. To see the covenant. Maintained. Because that speaks. To the worship of God. What if we believe that the worship of God was at stake when we were actually considering divorce? Fourth, worship heralds this covenant faithfulness. Meaning it certainly centers on covenant faithfulness in all of its images and types, like a good, sound, covenant-keeping, faithful, mutually believing home. But it also heralds this. Why? Because we forget. Why? Because in our midst there is brokenness. Because in our midst there is the disruption of covenant relationship. Look in chapter 2, verse 17 through chapter 3, verse 5. He says, You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, How have we wearied him? By saying, Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, Where is the God of justice? He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offerings of the Lord as in the days of old, as in the former days. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be swift, a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Worship means that there will be a herald. And a heralding of God's covenant faithfulness. And that faithfulness means this. God is going to make provision. And he will indeed inhabit his temple. And in that temple when he houses it. Is going to be one who purifies those who are his own. Represented by the Levites. But he also when he comes it will be difficult to endure. Impossible to endure. Because he will also come against those who defile him. The sorcerers. The cheaters. The cheaters the revilers, the adulterers. There is is some pointing fingers going on here. But here's what it basically says. In the meantime, I'm sending a messenger. Now, Malachi's name means my messenger. So we know him to be a type of herald, right? But we certainly know that, and we see this at the very end of this book. I think that John the Baptist is being foreshadowed here. John the Baptist is going to speak as the forerunner, of the messenger, to say, this one is coming, who's coming to the temple. And he's going to refine and purify. But he's also going to judge. He's going to judge. So we need a messenger because we need the message. But in Christ, we need both. Because every other messenger, Malachi, John the Baptist, they're speaking of the one who can satisfy. But when Christ comes... When Christ comes and speaks a better word, then we realize in Christ, then, we can have the righteousness that God demands forever. Only in Christ. Yes, contemporary to Malachi, there is the impurity of their morals. There is sorcery, there is adultery, there's liars, there's oppressive people. They're not dealing justly with one another. They're dealing unjustly with sojourners. And yes, that's likened to adultery. It's in the list. Worship affects all of our lives. And worship then affects how we wait for the coming king. He's come. The temple's been destroyed. It was raised up three days later. Now he's establishing his temple of his people that he inhabits. And one day he will come and reign. So in the meantime, what do we do? Do we grow weary and go after sorcery or adultery or treat others poorly? Because basically we've become so self-introspective. We're dealing with only ourselves, only what promotes us. Because we've just grown weary in doing well. We've grown weary in worshiping God like He says we should. And proclaiming His message throughout the earth. We grow weary of giving faithfully and so on and so forth. There's a need for this message and it all points to Christ. Everyone will give an accounting and only those who are His will repent and actually be refined. Well, let's quickly move on. Number five, worship displays joyful trust in God. Okay, so let me remind you, worship begins with a right view of God's love. It demands pure offerings. It centers on covenant faithfulness. It demands a herald of covenant faithfulness. And worship also includes a display of joyful trust in God. Chapter 3, 6-12. through 12. My apologies to the finance committee for not making this a whole sermon. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? He says, in your tithes and contributions, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me. Now, the whole nation of you, bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in the house, my house, and thereby... Put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. And then verse 12, then all the nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. The dispute here is that the people are robbing God and they're showing that their attempted joy in the world is really a declaration of their lack of trust in God. But just for summary's sake and for time's sake, let me say quickly what's going on here. God's nature is unchanging. He has promised to care for His own. I see very much the correlation of this is over in Matthew when He says in Matthew 6.33, seek first the kingdom of God. In that larger framework, He's saying, look at the sparrow. I take care of even them. Will I not even more so take care of you? They have clothing, they have food. His nature is unchangeable. With his covenant people, he will care for them. And he still graciously offers them to come back. But what's going on is they're robbing God. They're showing they do not believe him to be faithful, they do not believe him to be unchangeable. They actually have ceased to believe him to actually care for his own. It's not that different than the post exilic generation in the Exodus. I mean, he takes them through the Great Red Sea. I want bread. I know you gave me through the Red Sea. I know you didn't drown us, and you drowned the enemies chasing after us. But I'm really hungry. I don't believe you're going to feed me. Give me something to eat. Sounds ridiculous, right? But you know what? The Great Red Sea doesn't even compare to what it means for you and I to be spiritually raised from the dead. And yet we moan and we grumble as if He is not going to take care of our needs. Our problem is, we want God to take care of our greeds. Here's what happens. They rob God because they believe that the conditions demand that they don't give to God. But you know what God's saying? He says, look, you're robbing me, and the curse has been upon you, actually, because you're already robbing me. You have drought and famine conditions because you're not depending on me. It is a gracious disciplining of the Lord to allow circumstances to drive them in desperation back to the only one who can provide for their needs. Some of us have done that to ourselves. We go through that every summer and every other little periods during the church life. May, September, and some points in the summer, actually January, or actually I think three of our lowest months in giving. This isn't though just about giving here. It's about a larger picture. It's not just about giving in general anyway. It's about joyfully trusting in the Lord. He loves a cheerful giver because a cheerful giver joyfully says, Lord, all that I have is yours. I give a portion to the storehouse in the New Testament. That's the church. So that the needs of those covenant people, the local church assembly, are met. And he says, you know what? Here's what I want you to do. Put me to the test. Test and see that I won't take care of your needs. This isn't a test of, hey, if you'll sell your seed of $5,000, just wait. God will give you a threefold. And here's a prayer cloth. And I'll mail it to you. Or at least that's what I imagine a prayer cloth is. It's just somebody's, I'm sorry. But I can't make fun of some of that stuff even enough. Because it just takes, it takes and snatches from those who have so little so often. And the promises of things that are not about the kingdom. No, he says, put me to the test. Test my character. You are my people. I want to provide for you. Why? Because of verse 12. What did he say way back in 111? The nations are going to say that I'm great. And one way that I can show my greatness is by caring for my people. It doesn't always happen like we want it to. There are still martyrs. We still suffer. But he wants to take care of his own so that the nations recognize that God is distinctly taking care of his people. But he does focus on needs. Not all your wants. So there is an adjustment. Lastly, worship declares the love of God. And this is what we close with. Disputation 6 is the parallel to the first disputation about questioning God's sovereign love and His keeping love. The sixth one is that God's love is faithful and true. That's what's being disputed. Ultimately, what's in question here is God's worth, His trustworthiness, His holiness, His mercy. Why? Because they're bringing into question the fact that God has allowed the unjust to flourish and how the supposed people of God are not flourishing so well. But what they forget is that they think they're God's people merely by blood. And he's saying, no, you're actually a covenant people and I have holy, righteous demands of you. So he continues on. Starting in verse 13, your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? And here's the question of God's love. You have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts. In the day when I make up my treasured possession and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. There is a gauntlet being laid down. Even those who claim to be his, there's even a spiritual remnant within those. Paul speaks of this in the New Testament. There are those who will follow him. And not all of Israel is actually spiritual Israel. But those who call upon the name of Christ and they are the holy ones, the distinct ones. And the reason you can know that is because they are distinctly his. They serve him, they worship him, they follow him. There is evidence of being his own. And then verse, just the first few verses of chapter 4. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise and healing in its wings, you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall and you shall tread down the wicked for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. So he's saying it's not yet, but this is what's coming. Either you believe me or you don't. And here's the evidence of those who do. They repent, they worship me, they serve me. They were speaking harshly against God. How was He speaking harshly? They were saying, It's not worth serving Him. The payoff just isn't enough. The evil seemed to prosper. They, go get, they actually saw it as being more beneficial to go against God than it was to follow Him. God says, You're profaning My name. You're questioning My love by saying that. By saying, I'm not worth it. Any declaration of worth is about worship. And He says, Judgment's coming. There will be deliverance of some, but there will be the arrogant and the wicked and others who did not serve him, who claimed it was better to go after evil. They will be judged on that day. So, he says, I will have, I love that phrase, my treasured possession. Again, we have in the middle of our passion statement, glorifying God by treasuring Christ above all things and reaching those that they may find lasting joy in him. Those who treasure Christ above all things are his treasured possession. Graduates, do not buy the lie when you go to school. I don't care if it's across the street or if it's somewhere else. Or if you go work for a season, if you go into the military service, whatever is next for you. Do not think that the worship of God Almighty is on hold. It's so frequent that you would think as an 18, 19 year old that you're preparing for real life. And you'll have plenty of people that will say, oh, you don't even really know what's coming. But you know what? You're living and breathing. If you claim to be his own, all of life right now is worship. So what are you doing with your money and your service? Does your giving of time and life resemble that Christ is your greatest value and treasure? That speaks to worship. Do you love the assembly? Do you want to offer him all that you are? Not just a little bit. Do you want to hold on to something or give it all? Know that He's sovereign and His love is for you. That everything is His, everything, even all of His good things like children. Give effort to your homes. As much effort as you would ever think and imagine you should give to following Christ, you should give to your marriage. Because it emulates the relationship. Pursue family worship. Give up and forget thoughts of divorce. Stop using it as a tool in your arguments. Forsake your lusts. If you are in an adulterous relationship, you need to get some pastoral care and be willing to confess to your spouse. And let's pray by God's grace that there can be restoration to show a Hosea-like beauty in the Believe that God is always worth giving to and serving. Live looking to His coming. Look, I know it's a lot, but if this helps, let me boil it down to what Paul says in Galatians 6. In light of the fact He's not here yet, in light of the fact it does appear that the unrighteous prosper, in light of the fact that we do still suffer in this world, and let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of God. I hope that especially has taken on some new shape today, because you understand that it is that imperative of covenant relationship, the church, the home, that is what speaks, that is the background, and the format for how God's great name goes out to the nations and mission. So some of you, one of the most missional things you can do this summer if you don't go on a mission trip is to build up your marriage. When you see God show up and heal a marriage, you cannot help but speak to His greatness. You know, if you don't know Christ, if you actually think you're one of those that you've done enough good, I still challenge you back to what we said earlier. Are you good enough? Who are you comparing yourself to? Because... God said only one was good enough. So the question is, are you even as good as Christ? If you can, even in your honest gut, say to any degree, of course not, then you, on your own merits, will not be accepted into his kingdom. So you need Christ to do what only Christ could do for you, which was die for the sin, the death you deserve that he didn't. Raised from the dead, be alive. He lived a life you could never live from the dead which you cannot do but if you believe that he did it for you and trust in that and desire to follow him acceptable God I pray that you would move um, even in these few moments and then as we even celebrate um, with our seniors that this might even shape how we pray for our, our high school graduates that we would pray circumspectly not just that they'd be good moral kids and keep their noses clean make good grades God, Forget that kind of praying. I pray that, yes, that might be sub points. But our prayer is that they would be worshipers of you in all aspects of their lives. That they would worship you with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. That that's not just represented in good moralistic dealings and ethical behavior. But that, God, it's rooted in a deep, passionate love for you and a desire for you to overwhelm and be treasured in everything that they do. And then, God, by your grace, I pray that you would establish in their lives covenant, faithful marriages. They would go forth and speak a greater name to the world. God, we pray that you do this. And, God, for those that are realizing this morning for the first time that they don't have worth on their own, that they need Christ, I pray that you would give them the courage to speak to somebody about what it means to come to Christ and to follow you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.